you would, turn the Bible to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Merry Christmas to you all. Merry Christmas Eve to you all. I'm not sure how much people use that expression. Tomorrow's Christmas, and today's the day before Christmas. But we're really glad to be here. We worship Jesus. He came that we would worship him. He came to do the work that needed to be done to bring us into a relationship with him so that we could worship him. And it is very fitting. I know that um, it's very fitting that we are here on, on Christmas Eve. I know that the, uh, the, the, the schedules and the life, the lives that we live get very busy when Christmas comes on the weekend or comes on a Sunday. I think last year it was actually on, on Sunday, I think. And I know that that complicates everything. It's complicating our lives too. This Christmas Eve is gonna be very exhausting for us that, that, that serve the church. But the very word of this holiday has the word Christ in it, doesn't it? Christmas break, Christmas season, Christmas bonus, Christmas this, Christmas that, right? Christmas present. The very word has the name of Jesus in it. The title of his name, Jesus Christ, is, is in the word. I mean this. I can't wait to do all the things that dads do with kids for Christmas. I can't wait. But there's nowhere else I would rather be than right here today. Because Christ died on the cross for our sins. And he rose again to make sure everybody and everything knows he is the king of kings. And he came for his glory. And we're here today to give him that glory. Christmas is about Jesus. And this past month, we have been in a series called Troubled at Christmas. It's a little bit of a unique one. I've never preached one like this before, but the Bible talks about people in the Christmas stories being troubled, and so we just kind of went with that. If you've been here during December, you remember that the first one was Zechariah, and when the angel showed up to Zechariah, that priest serving in the temple, and told him that his barren wife was gonna have a baby, Zechariah was troubled, and the Bible says that very phrase, that he was troubled. The next one was Mary, that, that young virgin who had never been with her betrothed Joseph yet. And the angel shows up to her and says, you're going to have a baby. And, and she says, how? How's that possible? What's going to happen, right? And it says that Mary was troubled in that moment. And then last week, after Jesus was born, these wise men from the east came all the way and found the house where Jesus was at with his mother Mary. And they showed up and they said, hey, where is that new king? We have come to worship him. And the current king, King Herod, the Bible says, was troubled in that moment. A quick little reading of those passages shows us that Zechariah was troubled during the Christmas story and Mary was troubled during the Christmas story and Herod was troubled during the Christmas story. We didn't intend for this to be a discouraging or a negative uh, Bible study for, for our church during the holiday, but rather, a more <coughs> but rather a more honest one. 
that life is troubling and sometimes the holiday season will only compound that, will it not? We are people who are prone to be troubled. And at Christmas time, it's good for us to admit that. Long gone should be the days of people faking their religion and people smiling just to act like they think everything's okay when it's not. We are real people with broken lives, with a real Savior who forgives sins. The Bible says that God will heal us on the inside by filling us with love, joy, peace, hope, and those things. The Bible doesn't promise us that our circumstances, will our circumstances will necessarily get better here, this side of heaven. Here on earth, we will have trials and tribulations and struggles and heartache and loss, and we could go on and on. And you don't even need me to preach that to you. We live that so we know. But the Bible also teaches us that it is in that struggle that God entered in. We read earlier from John chapter one where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is it reveals to us what we call the incarnation, that the holy God who is out there in spirit, unable to be seen, came and made himself visible. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the man God, 100% man, 100% human, and 100% God. He never sinned. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, and yet he was like us in every way, tempted, and yet did not sin. It's a beautiful, beautiful, study to read the Bible and learn how Christ is God and he came to earth to be like us so that he could be the perfect sacrifice that would atone for the sins of the world so that the wrath of God which is a good and holy wrath that should judge wrongdoing would be satisfied when the holy spotless lamb of God was killed on the cross in our place Jesus is what life is all about, and Christmas forces us into that, if you will believe. Jesus is what the holiday season is all about. It's the very meaning of Christmas, but it's also the very meaning of all of life, and Christmas forces us into that. This Christmas Eve, we come recognizing that it can be troubling at Christmas time, and yet now we look to a passage today where Jesus speaks into it gives us in great simplicity the solution. John chapter 14 is not a Christmas passage by any means. It's a passage that most people are familiar with because he's talking about heaven. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You've heard those verses before, right? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and, and take you to where I'm going. We know that. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's this passage. And that's the passage we're using here today to wrap up this troubled at Christmas study because Jesus brings up our subject, being troubled. Read with me, if you will, from John chapter 14 as we study this morning only verse one. One verse today. John chapter 14, verse one, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. 
One verse that by the end of the service we'll all have memorized because I'm gonna repeat it to you multiple times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's John 14, one. It is so simple and yet when we see it in the context of chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, like we're going to do today, we're gonna see it is so good for us. It's, it's profound, it's helpful, it's what we need. It admits, Jesus admits, that this life is troubling which we say, yes, and then it supplies us, Jesus supplies us with the grand solution, which is a small solution, believe God and believe Jesus. That is the answer, folks, to the trouble of this life. I pray today, and I have been praying today, that over the next few minutes, the Lord would make that click or connect in our hearts and minds. Through this series, we followed four questions, and so we'll do that again today to walk us through it. Our first question is, who was troubled? Who was troubled? In this passage, remember, this is not a Christmas story. This isn't the Christmas narratives that we've read. We find Jesus in the middle of his final night on earth. John chapter 14 just flows immediately out of the end of John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is the Lord's Supper, the last supper of Jesus with his disciples. You know that passage. It's the passage where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. We're familiar with that. It's the passage where Jesus tells them, one of you all are going to betray me. We're familiar with this. And it's in this discussion, in this teaching moment, in this dialogue between Jesus and his 12 disciples that he says... Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and therefore that then applies to all of his people. Anybody that's listening to Jesus, this is who he's talking to. This is his Jesus, this is Jesus's final night on earth, which means the next day is the day that he would be betrayed. Okay? I mean, which means he was about to be betrayed, which means the next day is the day that he would be crucified. And so we know that he was killed on Friday. This is the passage where we get the new commandment. If you look back to chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Our candle that we lit for today in the Advent, in the Advent candles is for love. And the biggest and best and clearest expression of love that we have is from God to us. A sacrificial love where he loves expecting nothing in return. He just loves people. And God so loved the world that he gave his son. He teaches us to love everybody, to love our enemies and love those who offend you and love those who oppose you and love those who persecute you. This is the love of God and what God teaches us. It's in this passage that we find ourselves coming to John chapter 14. It's in this massive moment of 13, 14, 15, 16, that Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. So it is his disciples that he's having this final night with who are the ones that are troubled. Number two, what was it that was troubling? 
In this moment, what was troubling? Well, there's a lot, okay? At this point, these guys have been following Jesus for three years. You remember, he, he hand-selected them. He chose the disciples, those 12. They've been with him for three years. They've seen it all. They've seen the miracles. They've traveled with him. They've seen all sorts of opposition. They've heard his sermons. They've been with him for a while. And now it's getting to the point where he's about to leave. And remember, he talked openly about that. So that would be very, very troubling to them. To expand that a little bit would be these disciples trying to understand life in view of God. And we might say that without the saving grace of God at work in our lives through Christ, religion is often very troubling in this life. That's one of the reasons why you and I want to be very careful. We don't want to be foolish in saying it. But Christianity, while it is a religion, is not simply or merely a religion in which we are trying to do things for God to prove that we are good people or earn our way in a certain way. The Bible makes no hesitation at all that you cannot earn anything with God. The very best people in the world have still sinned against God and been separated from him. The very best people in the world are not on God's level. He is altogether good and holy and perfect. They're trying to understand life through a relationship with God, through their following of Jesus, and they found themselves, they find themselves here troubled. Specifically here, the disciples are troubled, and Jesus knows that. I've said that a few times over this past month. Throughout these passages, we have seen that Jesus knows and understands more than what is going on. That ought to comfort you here today. Jesus knows everything that's going on in your life. Jesus knows everything that you're thinking or feeling right now. He knows everything that you're wrestling with right now. He knows the very thing that you're worried about this evening. He knows the very thing that you're worried about tomorrow. He knows the very tension that you're living in right now. He knows what troubles you. He knows it. He sees it. He sees it. He's involved with it. We see this here because it's in the middle of all of this, Jesus' time on earth coming to an end, that he just speaks up and says, Let not your hearts be troubled. It it really seems to come out of nowhere in a very, very busy scene in the Gospel of John. There's a lot of big stuff going on through these chapters. In chapter 13 alone, he washes their feet. That's a massive scene. Remember, they're like, no way, you're not washing our feet. We're going to wash your feet. Jesus says, no, I need to wash your feet. I need to wash all of you. In chapter 13, he brings up to them, one of y'all is going to betray me. They're like, what? We're three years with you. What are you talking about? It's also in chapter 13 where Peter declares his big-time love and devotion to God and says, I'll do anything for you. I'm going to leave with you. I'll even die for you. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. All of that stuff is in chapter 13. And upon hearing all of that, it's then that Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Folks, you and I can be comforted here today if you will allow yourself to rest and God is bigger than you, more understanding than you, more knowing than you, and he is fully aware of what you're dealing with. He speaks into that. Let not your hearts be troubled. Here, though, he is talking about him leaving His departure from earth, naturally so, would have been troubling to these grown men who had left everything that they have to follow him. 
And now he is just telling them that he is leaving them. If you look back to chapter 13, verse 33. Look at 1333. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, look at this statement. Where I am going, you cannot come. Does everybody see that? I mean, y'all, that would have troubled the mess out of them. I mean, they're so troubled when they hear that. They left everything to follow him, and for three years they've been following him, and now out of nowhere, because remember, they didn't quite get the gospel. The good news of, the good news of God is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Remember, they didn't really quite understand that. They were trying to, but they didn't get it. It had to happen. They didn't become bold preachers of that cross until after the resurrection. And so when he's talking about leaving, they're like, what? What do you mean? And that's why they're saying things like, well, if you're leaving, I'm going too. Wherever you go, I go. And they don't understand. They're not going to get to heaven apart from the cross. And you aren't either. You're not going to get to heaven off of your goodness. You're not going to get to heaven without the cross, without the blood shed by the Holy Son of God. If your heart's troubled here today, look to the cross of Jesus where God gave his son for you. Believe. So that's why they're troubled. They are troubled about life and about him saying that he's leaving. What does all this mean? I mean, we've been trying to do the God thing for a while now. We're troubled by this. J.C. Ryle commenting on this hits it really good. He says, heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. Now, let me stop for a second. I don't think communist is a word. J.C. Ryle's a great preacher and commentator in the 1800s. Maybe the language has evolved. I would have said most common. I didn't write that, y'all. Heart trouble, I would say, is the most common thing in the world. But J.C. Ryle, 1800s, heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. Listen, no rank or class or condition is exempt from it. Isn't that true? Y'all know rich people right now that are troubled in life. And y'all know poor people right now that are troubled in life. Y'all know strong people right now that work out all the time and they're fit and they're troubled in life. Isn't it crazy how like really fit people go through injuries? And isn't it crazy how some people that don't ever work out, they, they don't get injured? Life is troubling, isn't it? J.C. Ryle speaking today, he says, nobody's exempt from it. He goes on, he says, no bars or bolts or locks can keep it out. Trouble is partly from inward causes and it's partly from outward causes. It's partly from the body and it's partly from the mind. It's partly from what we love and it's partly from what we fear. But the journey of life is full of trouble, isn't it? And it's fake religious people who try to act like it's not. It ain't honest to act like everything's all good and you got no worries. The truth is, is this life is troubling. The Bible has shown us this. Our Lord Jesus Christ right here says, don't let your hearts be troubled. So number one, who was troubled? It was the, the, it was the disciples. Number two, what was troubling? It was life and specifically that he said he was leaving. Number three, what was the response to being troubled? Well, I like this. It seems here that there's a lot of questions. And we've seen questions each step of the way, haven't we? Zechariah had some questions. Mary had some questions. Zechariah was like, hey, my wife's barren. We're old. This ain't happening. And, then, and, and the angel said, hey, you're doubting us, so we're going to discipline you by you being mute. 
Mary had a question, but it wasn't doubt. She believed, but she was like, tell me more. And then King Herod was like, I want to worship him too. Where, where was it that he's supposed to be born? And they said Bethlehem, but he was, he was, being, deceived, he was being deceptive. So there are a lot of questions when, when God is working through this Christmas story and the coming of Jesus. But here we see a lot of questions, and it's not about Christmas. It's about Jesus leaving. Let me show you. And this is really neat because you got three different characters just popping up questions right here in this scene. The first one is 1336. Look at 1336. It's just a few verses up. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? You see that question? That shows you. They were all in on Jesus. Here, he says he's willing to die for him, but he doesn't understand heaven and going there and Jesus' need to die on the cross and then be buried and then rise again and then ascend up to heaven. They just didn't understand all those things. You and I, looking back, have the gift from God to see the Christmas message and the gospel message and the saving message in hindsight. And hindsight is helpful, isn't it? You and I are living in, an, in a time period where we get to look back on this, these things. We see the full picture because we read it and we preach it, and then we sit here and we go, okay, are we gonna believe it or not? That's, that's the position you and I are in. We're not wondering about any of it. Where do we believe it? We got a book that tells us about it. We got a whole history of people that believed it. We've got the influence of what God's doing in the world. Do we believe it? That's where we're at. But the disciples, not so much. I mean, they were kind of in the middle of it. And so Peter just speaks up in 1336 and says, where are you going? Think about that. It's a little bit different, isn't it? And immediately he asks another question. Um, verse 37, Peter said to him, why can I not follow you now? Didn't understand the cross. Didn't understand what it took to get to heaven didn't understand that sin has no chance, zero chance of getting to heaven. I know that when we go to funerals, we really try hard to spin it that they're a good person and that they're in a better place, but it's not true. You're not in a better place because you're a good person. Not a chance, not a chance. You do not get to heaven by being a good person. Your sins, as few as they might be, if you wanna submit that you only have a few sins, We'll give that to you, more power to you. If you've only got a few sins, you're still not getting to heaven. Heaven is a perfect place. There's nothing bad there. There's nothing wrong there. There's no hurting, nothing bad in heaven. It's all good completely. And so the disciples, not even Peter, they're not just getting there. You're not just going with Jesus there. You're going with Jesus there because of what Jesus did on the cross to remove your sins from you. And to get your sins removed, you have to believe. You have to repent. You have to say, God, I come to you broken and guilty and convicted. And God, please forgive me of my sins. I know that Christ died for me, and I believe that. Oh, God, would you forgive me of my sins? And when you come to him really, really believing, he forgives you. He forgives you because what Christ did. You don't have to talk about how good you are at all. Hey, guess what? You don't even have to be good. You don't have to be good to go to heaven. One of our favorite passages of all is the thief hanging on the cross who's as guilty as guilty can be, and even he, like minutes before he dies, is mocking Jesus. And some miraculous way, praise God for doing that. Praise God for putting it in the Bible. 
at some point on the cross, he just comes to his senses and goes, what is wrong with me? What's wrong with me? He's innocent. I'm guilty and I'm blaming him. Lord, when you get into your kingdom, will you remember me? And God saves him right there. And he goes to heaven having never done anything good. That's the beauty of Jesus. That's the gospel. But Peter didn't understand that. So he's like, I'm going with you. Where are you going? And why can't I go? He doesn't get it. That's the first question. But there's another question. Look at verse 5, 14.5. This is Jesus still talking about heaven and his father's house. And this is the one known as doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going how can we know the way? He's a little bit further along in this thought. He's not asking questions about where and can I. He's now just saying, we don't, even, we, we don't understand all this. All this stuff you're talking about, you coming and you going and you, come, you coming back and you getting it ready and mansions and rooms and my father's house, like what? How can we understand all this? This is troubling, Jesus. And folks, that's pretty honest. If you wanna try to figure out this Wicked, cruel life without the cross of Jesus, you're gonna be confused and confused and confused. If you will listen to some of the things that religious people say, if you will listen to some of the things that fake church people say, it's foolish. It is ridiculous. You need a savior. You need the love of God to come down and do the work for you and graciously, mercifully save you and forgive you of your sins. That's the only hope. Thomas is getting there when he says, we don't know, how can we? And it's through that question in verse five that we get one of the best Bible verses in the whole Bible. Jesus says, and this is so clear, there's no debating this, there's no debating verse six. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to God the Father except through me. If you die without Christ, you do not go to the Father in heaven. There's no way. And that's for everybody. That is for everybody. Thomas's question is a good one, isn't it? And then there's another question by another guy in verse eight. Look at 14.8. Well, it's not actually a question. It's a statement, but it sounds like a question. He's still confused. Philip said to him in 14.8, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So G's been talking about the Father, and they know that God's the Father. G's been linking all this together, and he's leaving, he's going to them, and, and they're, they're, one in, they're one in the same, and that they're, they're united. And Philip just says, come on, make it clear to us. We're kind of we're getting overwhelmed with all of this. And that's why Jesus would often say, you don't fully understand it now, but you will soon. Let me die, let me rise again, let me send the Holy Spirit to you, and then it will all click. It is God's Holy Spirit working in his people that makes it all make sense, that gives us clarity. It's what gives us understanding and opens our eyes to the truth and opens our ears to hear the truth, the Holy Spirit. Y'all, chapters 14, 15, and 16, if you're taking notes, you need to know this. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 is the best place in the Bible about what the Holy Spirit does with Jesus leaving. 
John 14, 15, and 16, those three chapters, is the best place in the Bible about the Holy Spirit's work in us. It's incredible. And Jesus says, I have to leave so the Holy Spirit will come. So when Jesus left earth, he was no longer here. You couldn't follow him physically by watching him. He was gone. So he sends the Holy Spirit to be a power, a real power working in his people. They didn't quite understand all of that. And it is out of that, all these questions, that Jesus gets to 14.1. Look at John 14.1. It's out of all of that that Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Aren't you glad that Jesus says that? That's a word from your Savior to you. He knows we get troubled. He knows it. Now, we can admit here today, and I think this is is fair. I think we can admit here today that, hey, saying to somebody, don't let your hearts be troubled, is a lot easier said than done, right? It's like when somebody's getting worked up and you say, calm down. It doesn't help them calm down. It's like when somebody's worried and you say, don't worry. They start to worry more. Sounds like here, if we're being honest, when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, it sounds like, well, well, how, Jesus? But then look what he says next. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I love these two back-to-back statements. It really is so simple. It's six, seven words. You can't get it confused. You just have to embrace it. You have to accept it. You have to fully, wholeheartedly believe it, that that is the answer. The fourth question we've been asking each day is, well, what was the comfort? And the comfort to our troubles as we saw later in the case of Zechariah, as we saw beautifully all the way through with Mary, right? I mean, she, she says, how can this be? They say, God's gonna do it through the Holy Spirit. He's gonna, and she said, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. Amazing, right? According to your word. Mary believed through the trouble. Mary believed through the trouble. And then with King Herod, we never saw him come to believe. We saw, we saw that that was his problem. He, he refused to surrender and believe God, and he remained in trouble. Our final question is, what was the comfort? And the comfort here is a message from our Savior to believe him. He is on his way to the cross And as I said last week, as I quoted uh, Timothy Keller, at the very root of all the problem in the world, evil in the world, sin in the world, trouble in the world, is our sinful hearts that so often don't do the right thing. The heart will often deceive us and mess us up and get us longing for things that we should not long for. And so we have problems in this world. And it it is Jesus who speaks into that and says, let not your hearts be troubled because he is going to die on the cross for our sins. The rest of John shows us that he would be betrayed. He'd be praying in the garden. They would come and arrest him, and Judas would give them a sign of the kiss. He betrayed him. They arrested Jesus. They would take him. They would beat him. They would make fun of him. 
They would put a fake robe on him and a fake crown on him and they would mockingly bow down to him. They would spit in his face and beat him with a whip until he was just bloody everywhere. They would pluck out his beard. They humiliated him. They tortured him and then they crucified him on a cross. And in that moment, there was so much trouble. They all went and hid in the upper room. They had no idea what this meant. They didn't get it. Then Saturday happened and nothing happened. And then Sunday, the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. He was completely healed and he was alive. He had overcome it. And then in that moment, it started to click a little bit. The Holy Spirit hadn't fully came and, 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 and come inside of them, but it was starting to make sense. The promises were starting to all come together. And whoever believes that that is the work that God planned to do to give salvation to whoever would believe will be saved. Believe him. But when the Bible tells us to believe here, he's telling us to believe like in a big way, wholeheartedly. It doesn't mean just, just to believe simply in that, but to believe in who Jesus is, right? That's why we talk about the incarnation so much. Believe that he's really God, the second person of the Trinity, he's the son, and that he came from heaven, that he was born of a virgin, that he grew up, but he never sinned. Believe all that. Believe who he is and what he's done. Believe his teaching. Believe what he says. Believe who he is, believe what he's done. You have to believe in Jesus and everything about him. Wednesday night, I kept giving you all this quote from Charles Spurgeon, if Jesus be anything to you, he must be everything to you. He's too big and too great to just be half something to us or partial to us. Or he's not just our inspiration. He's not just our mentor that gives us good, good vibes when we need those on a bad day. That's such an insult to him. You're gonna be on your face before him one day. You're gonna bow your knees before him one day. If he is to be anything to us, he must be everything. But notice how good this is compared to do something. Imagine, I mean, notice how freeing and liberating and just comforting it is to hear him say, just believe me, instead of go do this and go do that. Y'all, he didn't say, all right, listen, all right, you gotta go to church every Sunday and no cigarettes and no tattoos and if you do go to church on Sunday, you better dress a certain way and you gotta raise your kids this way and you gotta do this. He didn't say stuff like that. And our church is not gonna say stuff like that too. We're gonna preach the word of God. We're gonna point people to what God has done for them and Christmas is about seeing what God has done for you. And the overflow of what God has done for you takes place in your life. And you start to make decisions in your life that will honor him. And so some of those things come into place. 
And you make good God-honoring decisions about is he pleased with this and is he pleased with that. And so our lives do take a shape or a direction. But God has not told us that any of those things are getting us anywhere with him. And we're not going to be a church like that. We're going to be a church that represents to this world what God has done in love through his son. And his message is believe me. When you get worried about this and you get worried about that, and you watch the news and everything worries you and your kids are having a bad day and you're worried about that and your money's short because everything's so expensive these days and you're worried about that and you find yourself being troubled, would you be reminded of the words of Jesus in John 14, 1, believe me, heaven's not that far away. God loves you. I died for you. As far as the east is from the west, your sins have been removed from you. He accepts people like us. In John chapter one, that passage that we read over, we read earlier that I came up and read in John chapter one. Do you remember when Jesus says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What a, what a word, what a Christmas message. If you will believe him, God will make you his child. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of the gospel. That's the good news. Over the summer, I read this book. If you're looking for a good book and a fun read, this book here called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. If you sometimes feel busy, if you eat dinner at 10 o'clock, if you don't have time to slow down, if your life is filled with hurry, 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 this is a good book for you by John Mark Comer. I wanna read a little bit to you. I'm talking to you here about Jesus being everything to you. I'm talking to you here about Jesus being the savior and you really, really, really believing in him, okay? That he would be everything to you. That's the point, okay? Listen to this. Now, he writes really, really, uh, funny. He kind of writes the way you talk, but he says, I live right on the edge of downtown Portland in this fun micro urban neighborhood. And across the street is a house full of single people who are essentially a walking advertisement for Nike. Nike is based in Portland suburbs. And I'm not sure if they work for the swoosh or if they're even sponsored or what, but all six of them are avid runners. Now I run, but I'm not a runner. You know what I mean? These people are runners. And frequently, early in the morning, as I'm sitting there drinking my coffee and praying, I see, them file out, I see them file out the front door to go for a sunrise run. Naturally, they're all wearing their tights, and trust me, they look good. Single-digit body fat, that lean but muscular look, impeccable posture, shoulders back, chin up, and then they start to prance, I mean run. They look more antelope than human. Seriously, their warm-up is faster than my speed workout. And regularly, as they run off, I think to myself, I want that. I want to look good in spandex. I want to run a six-minute mile without breaking a sweat. I want that level of health and energy and vitality. I want that life. But then I think about the lifestyle behind it. While I was up watching a movie and drinking red wine until midnight... They ate celery and water for dinner. And they went to bed at nine o'clock. 
while I was sipping my Kenyan single origin coffee in my bathrobe, they were out sweating through the humid goop of summer and through the ice of winter. When I run, I catch up on a podcast or I stare off into, I stare off into space thinking about my teaching for Sunday. They run intervals every 400 meters and they stretch their lungs to the breaking point. I run a cost-benefit analysis and quickly decide, as great as their tights look in the morning fog, it's not worth the pain. So I'll simply spectate. The reality is, stick with me, the reality is I want the life, but I'm not willing to adopt the lifestyle behind it. And I think that's how a lot of us feel about Jesus. We want the life that Jesus gives, but we won't commit by faith to the lifestyle. We read the stories of Jesus, his joy, his resolute peace through uncertainty, his unanxious presence, his relaxed manner, and how in the moment he was and think, I want that life. We hear his open invite to life to the full and think, sign me up. We hear about his easy yoke and his soul deep rest and we think, gosh, yes, heck yes, I need that. But then we're not willing to adopt Jesus' lifestyle. But in Jesus' case, it is worth the cost. In fact, you get back far more than you give up. There's a cross, yet. There's a cross, yes. There's a death, but it's followed by an empty tomb, a new portal to life because in the way of Jesus Death is always followed by resurrection. Listen to this quote from the 1800s. God's people are never so exalted as when they are brought low. God's people are never so enriched as when they are emptied. Never so advanced in life as when they are set back by adversity. And never so near the crown as when they are under the cross. The key to life, folks, even though everything in your life is pushing you to go against it, is to believe Jesus. The way, the truth, the life. And I know most people don't. You know most people don't. Most of your friends don't. Most of your family don't really believe him. But the work that God is doing in the world is causing people to believe in him. And he does it through his word. May that be us. May you believe him. This book goes on in a couple of ways to say a couple things that I want you to hear. He says, the Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. But Jesus as the truth gets far more attention than Jesus as the way. Jesus as the way is the most frequent evaded metaphor among the Christians whom I've worked with for 50 years as a pastor. He says, if the results that you're getting are lousy, listen to this, anxiety is at a simmer, mild depression in your lives, high levels of stress, chronic emotional burnout, little to no sense of the presence of God, an inability to focus your mind on the things that make, your, make for your life, then the odds are very good, listen to this, that something about the system that is your life is off kilter. The way you've organized your morning or your evening routine, your schedule, your budget, your relationship to your phone, 
how you manage your resources of time, money, and attention, something is out of whack. He goes on to say, honestly, the solution is very, very simple. If you want to experience the life to the full, the life of Jesus, his nonstop conscious enjoyment of God's presence and world, all you have to do is adopt not only Jesus' theology and ethics, but also his lifestyle. Follow Jesus. In our passage today from John chapter 14, we hear him say, believe me. And when Jesus says for us to believe him, he means for us to come and surrender that he's the answer. Church, I'm thankful for Christmas Eve services. It seems like life has stopped at least enough for us to really hear what the Bible says. In this life, we will have trouble, but Jesus has overcome the world. The next time you're troubled, in your trouble, believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now and we believe you. We thank you that Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And God, we admit today that at times we are. So we ask for your power to help us believe. Not just say we believe, but really believe. Not half-heartedly believe or a lukewarm faith where we straddle the fence. Not just where we keep trying to comfort ourselves that we're good people but where we say Jesus is everything and we will look to him and look to him and look to him. Father, do that work in us. Make us believers. Make us comforted in our trouble by believing. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.